I would get from many writers, but in particular other black writers, who would say, well, you know, you're not a black poet because you're writing about your dog or about the beach and or love. Obviously, I think that all of these experiences are human experiences. But in moments like this past week with the George Floyd uh, killing, I do find moments of wondering, what is the point, Carl? What is the point of what you're writing if you're not writing about this? But I have an answer for it. You know, there has to be a space made still for joy. That's poet Carl Phillips. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. And once again this month, we have put together Cut and Paste remotely, so you are going to hear a conversation that happened between me sitting in my closet and the guest sitting in his house a few miles away. Um, So it doesn't quite sound like the usual Cut and Paste. There's some background noises, uh, but I think that just adds to the ambiance, right? So Carl Phillips is a professor of English at Washington University, and he is a very prolific poet. In March, he published his 15th collection of poems. Uh, He writes about everyday moments, about relationships, about sex. Let's listen to a taste of his work. Here he is at an event at the Library of Congress in 2014. He's reading a poem from his first collection. It's called Passing. This is an excerpt. The famous black poet is speaking of the dark river in the mind that runs thick with the heroes of color. Jackie R., Bessie, Billy, Mr. Page, anyone who knew how to sing or when to run. I think of my grandmother, said to have dropped dead from the evil eye, of my lesbian aunt who saw cancer and a generally difficult future headed her way in the still water of her brother's commode. I think of voodoo in the bottoms of soup cans And I want to tell the poet that the blues is not my name, that Alabama is something I cannot use in my business. Years after he wrote it, he described that poem as cranky, by the way. But Passing is a poem that a lot of people cite when they talk about Carl Phillips' work, in part because there's some pretty low-hanging irony there, right? He was an unknown poet when he published it in 1992, but he is most definitely a famous black poet himself now. And we talked about his feelings, about what that means, about what expectations come with that uh, among readers and even other black writers. But first we talked about the unlikely way he found his way to this life. He was a high school teacher. He was teaching Latin when he started writing poetry in a serious way. I asked him how it all started. I just found myself writing for no reason that I knew. And when I was teaching in a high school, the poet Martina Spada came to the school as a poet in the school's visitor. And he had a sort of impromptu workshop with any teachers who wanted to volunteer. So we did a free write. And at the end of that, he called me over and said, you know, you seem as if you actually write poems. Have you, have you ever thought of taking it seriously or signing up for a st- applying for a state grant. And I didn't know there were such things. So I applied for the state grant and forgot about it. And six months later, I got this letter saying I'd won $10,000 for having sent them 10 poems. Um, It was like more money than I'd ever had. And that led me to take a summer workshop. And the teacher there, Alan Dugan, 
wondered if I'd ever thought of putting a book together, which I never had, but I had a lot of poems. So I put them together, sent them to a contest, and and won. Like all this stuff that never happens anymore. To certainly doesn't happen to my students. And here I am. Well, you must be one of the very few poets who, at, at least at a very brief moment, might have been able to say that you got into it for the money, right? <laughs> That's right. I guess so for for that. But but yeah, that was a a high point. That didn't last forever. It's not usually a very money making operation. I know your first collection was in 92 mm-hmm. and let's see, let's, let's do some math. You were born in 59. So your early thirties yeah. when that, when that first book comes out. The reception was basically, here is this new, oddly urban poet. I remember thinking, what is so different? I don't feel I'm doing anything different except writing down my thoughts. And, but I ended up because of this, I ended up dropping out of a program. I was in a PhD program to become a classics professor and, and going to the workshop at Boston University for a year, sitting in on Robert Pinsky's workshop. And mm. he asked what I was going to do at the end of the year. And I said, you know, I'm going to look for another high school job. He said, I just visited a school named Washington University in St. Louis. And he said, they're looking for a visiting writer. And I think you might be able to get the job. And I came out here and, and they quickly told me, they kept reminding me, it's only three years, no tenure. Then it, after a year, it turned into a tenure-track job, and I've been here since 93. Would that have been a, a couple of years before Robert Pinsky became the, the National Poet Laureate? Yes, um, because I invited him here as a, a visiting professor for a few weeks, and it was while he was here that he got the call asking him oh. if he would be Poet Laureate. It's all been a very strange ride. Well, see, I've, I've seen you describe poetry with the wonderful phrase, uh, a poem as a containers for ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you open that up a bit for me? Tell me what you're thinking of there. Well, I think they're containers for things that we find ambiguous in life. And poems briefly make, make it feel as if those um, conundrums of life have some fixity and, and a place. It, what I think of it as is, giving shapelessness a form. And so by shapelessness, I mean things like love, freedom, racism, all those big idea words that we can never really say exactly what they are. And But a poem can briefly hold in place what you're thinking or feeling about those things right then and there. It doesn't solve it, but it's a temporary stay against confusion, I think. Let's talk, if, if, if we can, a little bit about your, your creative process. Now, someone who's, who's writing a short story or a novel may start with a character that they find fascinating or a uh-huh. conflict they want to put a character into. A musician may have certain musical problems that they want to solve or chord progressions they want to explore. Where do you find a poem? Or where do, you know, when, when do you know that you have an idea that is going to make its way into becoming a poem? Hmm. Well, I'm not very process-oriented. What happens is... First of all, most of my ideas for poems come during seemingly menial tasks, like mostly walking my dog, often doing kitchen prep for dinner. So t- things that allow my mind to wander because I don't really have to focus on what I'm doing. And what will happen is just a word or a line will come into come into my mind um, or can t- simply be a word like snow. And and so what I'll do is I'll write this down in a notebook I keep with me and and say, okay, maybe that's going to be in a poem. And 
I'll collect these things. Usually once a month, I'll sit down and think, I think I could write a poem if I just stared long enough at this page of fragments and sentences. It's almost like seeing a bunch of pieces of a puzzle that are lying around and thinking, well, let's start here. These two fit together. What else fits? And slowly I, I come up with something. And it's I'm never able to write a poem with the idea first of what I'm writing about. So it's more oh. like it's more like a wandering, a, a kind of getting lost and questing yourself forward until you realize, oh, I was always headed in a certain direction. And that's the argument of the poem. So often I'll finish a poem and I'll, I'll feel it's finished, but I don't know for a couple of days what is it about. And that's so different from some friends of mine who will decide, um, well, for example, like the, um, the events of this last few days, uh, there are many people saying, do you have a poem? Do you, can you write a poem about um, what's going on? And I can't. I can't just summon up a poem like that. But it might be many weeks later, I'll, I'll write something, I'll realize, oh, this came, this came out, of, out of all of that back in June. This seems like an opportune moment to talk a bit about poetry and politics. Uh-huh. And I know you, you wrote an essay in Poetry Magazine, A Politics of Mere Being. Yes. And my understanding of that is uh, that you're reckoning, you reckon in that piece with uh, the fact that you bear certain identity markers that in some contexts or to some audiences uh, might want to be interpreted as inherently political just by being. Mm-hmm. And and I think you're you're claiming for yourself the space to do your work in a way that isn't explicitly referencing, <laughs> isn't referencing your your identity in some conscious way. Is is that a, a fair yes. way to to get at it? Yeah, that is what I'm getting at. And it came from people suggesting to me that I wasn't a black poet because I didn't write about black things. And when I would ask them what that meant, they would say things like, "Well, you know, there's no drugs in your poems. There's no." crime there's no you know th- stereotypes of an inner city urban life whatever they wanted to call it and at the same time i would get from many writers but in particular um other black writers who would say well you know you're not a black poet because you're writing about your dog or about the beach and or love and i guess i obviously i think that all of these experiences are human experiences um, of whatever race you are. So that was the reason for writing that, that article. But that doesn't mean that um, I don't feel that I write political poems. I guess I, I think it depends on context. And, but I don't feel as if poets should be told how or what they should write about. The whole point is that we can sort of be leaders in ways of thinking differently from how people are used to thinking. So in that sense, almost everything's political. But in moments like this week, this past week with the George Floyd uh, killing, uh, it seems to me that it is hard. It is hard for me to sometimes wonder. I do find moments of wondering, what is the point, Carl? What is the point of what you're writing? if you're not writing about this, but I have an answer for it. I think that works for me. And, and I've been talking with a lot of other poet friends of mine, black poets who have said, you know, there has to be a space made still for joy, for the things I write about 
in particular, the body, sex, um, morality. Morality, it seems to me, is a very relevant thing to be thinking about right now. But also, so is so is joy. And I guess I, of course, the urgency right now is to speak more directly to the immediate events. But most people I know are also saying that they are welcoming moments where they just stop, like they turn off that lens and try to, you know, enjoy some music, say, um, or just take a walk and remind oneself that one is alive and in a world that one still wants to be in when it can, one can succumb too easily to despair, it seems to me. Mm. And I mean, I think there is a perspective where in a, in a culture that, that systematically wants to deny the humanity of black people. Yes. A man, a, a man who identifies as a black man walking the world as an acclaimed poet is, a, is a, in some vantage point a political act in and of itself. Well, uh, yes. I mean, I, I believe what a, what a lot of people say, which is that uh, I feel as if every day for me to leave my house and walk my dog is in some way politically charged, especially I live in the central West end. It's a, it's a rather moneyed and privileged part of town. I'm the only person of color, the only black person that I know anyway, for several blocks on my street. In fact, on my street at all, as far as I know. And I think there's something very, there's something odd about that. It's not as if there's not a black population moving through the neighborhood from poorer neighborhoods, more troubled neighborhoods. Um, and you see the gated communities. I don't live in one, but I certainly walk past them. And so there's the weird political charge of what am I doing here? To what degree am I complicit if I live here? On the other hand, I want to say that I can be here as a black and queer person. I have every right to be. And at the same time, just because I feel I have the right to be doesn't mean that everyone who lives around me agrees with me. And it's, you know, it's, I think about it every time I take out my cell phone. I know there are black people who have been shot because a cell phone was mistaken for a gun. It's odd to me that I should have to think that way. You know, we think that somehow our privilege is going to lift us somehow from that. But it's all the same, it seems to me. So, yeah, I guess that's to say it's, it seems hard to be anything but political as a human being anyway. But certainly I find for myself. The poem, um, Swear It, is that, is that a new piece? Oh, you're really up to date. Uh, <laughs> yes, I wrote it just a few days ago out of a kind of despair and rage. Right when, right when it all happened, um, after the, the killing, then once people started taking to the streets, and I, I just I sat down. I never do this. I just sat down and started writing. I didn't think I was really writing towards that, those events. But, but I do feel as if I ended up I was writing from the psychological and emotional space of those events. And I like to think that the poem is resonant enough that it applies to right now and that maybe will be of value later. I was just trying to put the idea of what it is to be a, alive and to not have been among the killed. And, and should you be grateful for that? And what is the value of gratitude in the context of feeling you're always being hunted? Would you consider sharing that with us? I just turned my computer on so I could find it. It's so new, I don't have it even lying around here. I did a very uncharacteristic thing by throwing it onto Twitter. I just thought, you know, instead of sitting around wondering where, what journal you should send this to and hope it's published, 
you know, let people see it now. Maybe it can be useful. And it, a lot of people have seemed to have liked it. Okay, it's called Swear It. So much that isn't the answer, all the same, means something. Why did I live equals why was I spared for so long that to take the living part for granted became so easy that having to stop living, the thought of it, to what purpose, equals fear, not gratitude, not a wreath, more like a crown worn badly. They died in fear. Fuck gratitude. That's the poem. That's poet Carl Phillips, and this is Cut and Paste. We'll be back after this one quick message. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back to Cut and Paste. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. We pick up my conversation with Carl Phillips about his new poem, Swear It, and what he means by that last line when he tells gratitude to, uh, you know, buzz off. You know, it all is in context. I mean, I don't really think that gratitude is not worth thinking about. I like to have gratitude for a lot of things in my life. But I don't think, you know, I think gratitude, if people say you should be grateful, um, you should be grateful that you live the life you do or something, I think, you know, that doesn't mean that I can't be restless and and upset with with other things that also are going on around me. And um, and also sometimes gratitude suggests you're just supposed to be happy for what you've got. And that suggests you shouldn't have any ambition beyond what you've got. And, and for many people, um, you know, it's that ambition has been killed it seems to me just by societal things and and but it's a form of living i think to have an ambition for something more like more in freedom not money not things but more um you know respect and and the same rights as everybody else yeah i think when when someone urges someone else to to have gratitude or have more than they do um that often is more of a invitation to shut up <laughs> yes yes i've noticed it a lot at universities oh really oh yes <laughs> so it seems to me that yes it's uh when if there is a concern i've i've long been but especially the last few years a very loud voice um in my department in my writing program um because i'm the only person i'm the only non-white person let's put it that way, um, in the program. I'm the only person, non-white person, who's been there in my 24 years here, I believe. And that that is troubling for me, for a school and department that prides itself on all the you know, strides it's taken in terms of diversity. And it certainly has improved, but 
not in my department. So yeah, I do speak up a lot about that. You're a professor of English. What what department are we talking about? I'm a professor of English, but I'm mainly in the creative writing graduate program. Creative writing graduate program. Yeah, and in that program, there's no one else of color. And um, there's also no one who um, is openly queer. And so it's very hard for all these years to have been the sort of, well, feels like token representative. And and I, I do resent being told um, or it being implied to me often that why can't I be happy? Um, I, I'm paid well. I don't teach a lot. And um, I have my career, so I should just sit down, I guess, and be quiet about it. But I'm not like that. <laughs> so, so um, you know, I've, I've been able to affect lots of change in terms of the, the students we accept. And that's so that's one thing that I actually have the power to change. Your latest collection, sir. I wondered how you were going to segue. <laughs> uh, just smash cut. <laughs> uh-huh. Pale colors in a tall field. Uh, it just came out in March. Yes. Uh, you've talked about not sort of sitting down with a thematic program in mind, but uh, is this work bound together under any, any kind of a concept or theme? Not by design. Um, what I do, how I put a book together is I'll, I'll just go poem by poem. And then one day I'll think, oh, I think I have enough poems that could be a book. And I'll... You write a lot of poems, by the way. Well, <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting because I write a lot more than I publish. And so what will happen is there'll be like 50. And I'll think, I think I can get maybe 30 out of here that are good. And then once I get down to those 30 or so, I'll just live with them for a few nights. And, and I'll slowly start to see how, oh... Because I wrote each poem separately, I didn't see how one went with the next. But I'll start to see that, oh, certain things come up. So in this book, there is it does seem as if there's a lot about memory, the untrustworthiness of memory, um, regret, which is kind of a form of memory. And, and I suppose, even though I like to think of myself as youthful and spry, it's sort of about, you know, being middle-aged or past middle age and you know, by then you've got, you've got a lot that you've, a lot of experience and not all of it is clear. Did it happen? Did it happen the way I think it did? So that's how I came up with the title, Pale Colors in a Tall Field, because I, I was actually at the uh, Shaw Arboretum wandering through their restored prairie. And it took me a while to realize there were all these wildflowers down by my feet, but I hadn't noticed them because of all the tall grass. And and I thought, oh, those are like little memories that pop up in your mind sometimes. You think you've forgotten something. Then while you're peeling potatoes, you, you remember a song your mother sang to you or something. And, and I think of that as like a small color, a paler color. If the things we have as strong memories are vivid colors, and then it's as if there are all these pale colors also in the field. If you look closely enough, they'll surprise you. Have you been spending a lot of time lately thinking about your relationship to memory? Yes, but I think I want to say only in the way that I think anyone at 60 does, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, well, for example, uh, by the time one is 60, at least for me, um, I have one parent who has died, my mother. And, and so I'll have memories of her. And then when I talk to my s- sisters, the memories are very different for them. And that's what started me thinking, well, oh, so memory is slippery. I knew that. But 
we only know our past by what we remember. And what do we do if we find out that, oh, that wasn't so, or it was so for me, but my sisters don't remember it at all. And so in a way, it's, I've, I've written about morality in this way too, that it's as if we want a guidepost, but to real, then we realize the guideposts are constantly shifting. So we can never, it's hard to orient ourselves to where we are in the present when we don't have any fixed hold on the past. I'm someone who tends to think, at least, that I have very specific memories about small details yes. that somehow got imprinted somewhere, um, but I may not recall the larger context very well. That's something I run into a lot. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's familiar to you. Yes, it is. But then what if you find out those small details are actually slightly inaccurate? That's yeah. That's what's sort of scary to me. Um, or what if, what if you're the only person left who was at the scene? So you're the only one who even knows something happened. If um, you went to a party with three people, but two of them have since died. So did the party ever happen? Only insofar as you remember it happened. It's a strange feeling when you're the last witness to something in your brain. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And, or I find relationships are this way. Say, say someone that you say you loved and you lived with for years, and then you break up and you have a very fixed idea, a very certain idea of who that person was, why the relationship ended, etc. But if you were to talk to them, they've been going around telling a very different story about you and why the relationship is different. And who's to say who's right? So you're both, you do have, you're both witnesses to this life you made together, but you see it differently. And so you remember it differently. Mm. And so which is the true relationship? Which one really happened? Is there something from your from your new book you'd care to share? Oh, sure. Um, see how I acted as if that was just not even planned? <laughs> You're just spontaneously picking something, right? Uh-huh. I had no idea you were going to ask me to read anything. Um, all right, here's, here's a poem called is it true all legends once were rumors? And it was as we'd been told it would be, some stumbling weakly, some stumbling wingless, others flew beheaded. But at first when we looked at them, we could see no difference. The way it can take a while to realize about how regretfulness is not regret. As for being frightened, though for many animals, the governing instinct when most afraid is to attack, what about the tendency of songbirds in a storm towards silence? Is that fear too? For mostly, yes, we were silent, tired as well, though as much out of boredom as for the need to stretch a bit, why not the rest on foot, we at last decided. And dismounting, each walked with his horse close beside him, we mapped our way north by the stars, old school, until there were no stars, just the weather of childhood, where it's snowing forever. That's the poem. Well, the, the easy follow-up question is just, why, why did you choose to share that one? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, for one, it's, it has a bit of a story to it. I thought that might be more listener-friendly. Mm -hmm. And... I will say I'm always surprised 
how we get to the ending. I mean, it's just some people on a journey of some kind. We don't know where they're coming from or going to. But there's something about the weather of childhood where it's snowing forever that to me opens up into a whole different space. It's an interesting place for a poem to end. You know, at the very end, you might think, well, what do you mean it's snowing forever in the weather of childhood? And who says? And why is that? Yeah. I think the gift of the poet is to sometimes, what, say a thing, turn a phrase, write a sentence that will hit the reader as both completely new and also obvious. <laughs> you yeah. Know, uh, an idea that's new but seems like it's always been true, and why didn't I think of that before? Yeah. And I, and I experience that sometimes with your work. Well, I'm glad. It's what it's what I love about things that I read by other people is that I see the world a certain way, and then they present it to me in a way that makes me think, huh, I never saw it that way. Or, equally gratifying, I'll read something. And right now I'm reading with a whole reading group. I'm reading War and Peace, which I never thought I'd read. It's been fascinating to me how many times things that happen in this novel, so it's in the 1810s, takes place in Russia, how they resonate with my life now. And um, just yesterday, there was a line that Tolstoy had about these the various people they're talking about have suffered a lot. And then they start talking about some happy things. And it says, he says something like, they were ready at last for happiness and to admit that with all the sorrows that they had had, it was okay to share happiness too. And I thought about that because I thought, yeah, we're living in a pretty dark time right now. And it seems frivolous to do something like, I don't know, cook a meal, make love. But those things are still necessary. You know, Tolstoy reminds us that happiness is here to leaven the sorrow. And that's important. So in that way, I like how literature sometimes just reminds us that, oh, what you think is your contemporary life, it's always been this way. And there's some comfort in knowing that too. I wonder if creating art at all, some of that is the impulse to say, this this exists and this is true. Yes, I think, I actually feel, this is where I think that writing poems, for me anyway, is a form of resistance because it, it says, this happened. Even if the events here didn't happen, it happened that I thought this, I imagined this, and I've put it on paper so it can be a record. That's poet Carl Phillips. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and this has been Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast, produced with help from our executive editor, Shula Newman. Our intro and outro music is by Eric Hall. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.